0: Bob Lindquist on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Leppy. Very nice to see you. Yeah, you too. So you were in the retail
1: uh, gig back in the late 70s. Correct. Yeah, when I got out of college, I uh, didn't know what to do with my life. I liked wine, and I I did different jobs. I I worked for a wholesaler for a little while. I worked for a retailer for a little while, and then landed a job at a retail store in the Santillanes Valley uh, in in the little town of Los Olivos, uh, which is kind of what brought me to that. Area and I've been there ever since.
0: Oh, okay. So you were kind of down south from the beginning.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. I'm from the Midwest. My parents are both Midwesterners, uh, but I grew up in Southern California. My dad worked for uh, McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Company, which is uh, has a big office in Huntington Beach, California, Orange County. Because there's a fair amount of uh,
0: military bases in California, or at least there used to be more. There, there, yeah, especially back in the '60s. Yeah. So you're you're there. You're working a retail wine gig.
1: You meet up with your Kimo for Life, Jim Clendenin. What yep. happens next? Well, we, uh, Jim was the uh, assistant winemaker at Zaka Mesa. And I got hired uh, at this little retail shop that was owned by the son of the owner of Zaka Mesa.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, kind so, of like
1: one of those small world things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nepotism, if you will. But uh, the 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 you're owner, saying that guy wasn't too bright. The sun <laughs> he, is that what you're trying to imply? <laughs> he he was he was not. And rest in peace. He's gone. <laughs> he's gone now. So I, I, I can say that. But uh, uh, but he was a he was he was a nice enough guy. But he he had a, a little retail store in Los Olivos, and it was actually way ahead of its time. Uh, if if he had been able to hold on there uh, and and see how Los Olivos has developed today. Uh, pretty incredible because in the 70s it wasn't such a wine destination right right and, and what, what this was this was 1979 so the very end of of that decade and heading into the early 80s so how'd you make a shift into from retail into working in a winery i i was working at the store and uh uh working retail you always work weekends which is fine because that you know that that's what you sign up for And, uh, one of my favorite bands was coming to Santa Barbara to play at the Santa Barbara bowl, the kinks. And, uh, they were playing on a Sunday. So two months prior to the show or something like that, I asked my boss, I said, you know, I need, wonder if I can get this Sunday off so I can go to the kinks concert. And he said, Oh yeah, no problem. I'll cover for you. And, uh, so I got the tickets and, uh, about three days before the, the show, or I think it was the Friday before the Sunday, two days before the show. I said, "John, you remember that this Sunday I'm going to the King's concert. It was on the, you know, on the calendar and all that." And, and he looked at me right in the eye and said, "Sunday's the opening of dove hunting season. I'm going dove hunting." And I said, "Well, I'm going to the King's concert."
0: <laughs> "Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that works out for you. <laughs> yeah. I'll be thinking about you yeah. at
1: the King's concert." "Yeah, yeah, exactly." And and he he said, "Well, the, you know, if the store doesn't open on Sunday, you're fired." And he and I had been kind of Butting heads a little bit on yeah, some things like,
0: anyways. That had to have that's not a yeah, conversation it wasn't, you just it have on the fly. You know it, what I mean? Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. It wasn't cool. Yeah. And uh he was he was testing me, I think, and and
0: uh Oh, it was like a mano a mano thing. Like yeah, yeah I went yeah. to
1: shop, you work for me.
0: I'm yeah it's like remind you, have, you of that. Yeah,
1: when it's on the when it's on the calendar at the at the store, how can you forget <laughs> the fact that, that uh But he was going dove hunting? Dove hunting yeah, he he was he's he's a big like, he was a big hunter. Isn't again. that
0: like you know, doves of peace and you're <laughs> killing them. I mean, doesn't yeah. that imply Satan anyway? is <laughs> yeah. that like? Doesn't this mean that he was a bad guy? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, just,
1: yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's, it, dove hunting. is like, actually not for me, obviously. But I'm uh, going to go.
0: You know, procreate Rosemary's Baby. You know, it's just things you say that don't sound
1: like you're a good guy if yeah. you say them. I think yeah. you know yeah. what I mean. I don't know exactly. So, so you, he went he went dove hunting. Yeah. I, went, I went to the Kinks concert. Yeah. And I, I went with with Jim in fact and and uh Jimmy C. And it, yeah, it was a it was a, a really really great show and on Monday morning I went into work and he handed me my paycheck and shook my hand and said you know, it's the principle, and I said, "Yeah, I understand. No, no worries." Yeah, and uh, that—that was—that was that. It's kind of too bad that now you like, because now you could pull out the Instagram
0: and be like, "But look yeah, at the yeah. show, bro," and have yeah. it like on Vine yeah, and be exactly. like, "This was baller, <laughs> totally worth it, man." You know, and yeah. now you can't. You know, back yeah. then you you were like, "Oh, yeah, I, I can't a, do yeah. it." Yeah, I didn't
1: mm-hmm. even have a cell phone back then. <laughs> you know, to get like a poster is a big deal back then. Right. You know? Right. But anyway, so so he fired me. And, yeah, And that, and that was and, probably and, the and, best thing that ever Jim, happened in that relationship. Jim Clendana knew the backstory of all this, and, and he interceded with uh, the father on my behalf. Um, and uh, that afternoon, his, his father called me and said, you know, I heard what happened. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. But we'd like to hire you at Zaka Mesa. And, uh, so you were fired by the son and hired by the dad in the same in day. In the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of ironic and kind of cool and and i said well would you mind if i had a week off first yeah yeah
0: (laughs) actually the kings are in town for a couple more
1: (laughs) yeah i hadn't had a vacation i'd been working in the in the shop for nine months and uh you're like i heard dove hunting's really cool
0: i'm gonna try it out this week plus i
1: plus i knew going to work at zaka mesa i knew i'd be running kind of it would be right into the, the the frying pan because it was uh they were doing bottling right before harvest and harvest was right around the corner and um, and what was that like? You show it, up and what happens? It, it, was, it was great. Yeah. Uh, what what I was hired as though was their, their first tour guide. Um and they had just opened their doors to the public. Um they didn't have a tasting room, but but they put you know a plank across the top a couple of 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 a couple of barrels, and we had a handwritten uh you know uh sales book uh and a calculator, and that's how we sold wine. And, and we should say this is one of the, the
0: pioneering...
1: Yeah, and so, that's, and so that's what I did. That that was my main job, but we hardly got any tourists. So while I was hanging around waiting for tourists to come by, uh, my other job was to work in the cellar, as a cellar rat. And so that's how I got to learn winemaking, and, and Jim was my boss and showed me, you know, kind of showed me the ropes, showed me how to fill barrels, how to, you know... Stack barrels, how to fill tanks, how to take care of tanks, you know, how to, how to do all the little things, how to operate a pump, how to operate a filter, all the little things that you need to learn to make wine. And uh, so that's how I got my start. So in, in a kind of a roundabout way, I credit Ray Davies and the Kinks for my career as a winemaker.
0: <laughs> But it also seems like Jim Clendenin had a heavy piece in that. And he did. W- you know, when I first met you 10 or 12 years, maybe more, you were with Jim. The, yeah. You know, so you guys have been
1: buddies for a billion years, as far yeah. as I can tell. And, and what was Jim like back then? Well, he was, He was. you know, we were both young. Uh, in, in 1979, we were both 26 years old. So we were, you know, we were newbies, you know, in, in the wine business. And we were very enthusiastic and, and you know, full of uh, gumption and, wanting to kind of make our mark and so it was a it was a very heady time for us and 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 it wasn't just the two of us there were other people in our orbit that were important Uh, adam tolmack was the assistant uh, or the uh uh, enologist at zaka mesa jim was the assistant winemaker the winemaker was a guy named ken brown who was a little bit older than jim and i but but he's like six years older so looking back at it he was like you know, thirty-two or thirty-three years old, and when we were twenty-six, so he was a young guy as well, just starting out, and and uh, it was it was really cool. And these are all people that have
0: also done things, sometimes with Jim, sometimes on their own, you know, in the wine business, right,
1: right. You know. People who evolved in in the wine business and and uh, really made their mark in in the Central Coast.
0: What was that time like? I mean, at that time, how many wineries were in
1: that area? Well, let's see. When I started at Zaca Mesa, there were probably. 10 wineries, maybe a dozen, something like something like that. Because a few years later, when I started Coupé in 1982, I was the 17th winery in Santa Barbara County. And how many are there today? Probably 150 or something like that. We could we could Google it and find out. But uh, uh, it's, it's in that neighborhood. It's, it, it's grown, and, uh, you know, in leaps and bounds.
0: One of the things that's interesting is that whereas a lot of other people kind of went the uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir route in that zone, and you do some Chardonnay, but you you
1: really focused in on Syrah mm-hmm. early
0: on back in the day. And how did that kind of come about?
1: Well, you're you're right about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. That's really what Santa Barbara became uh, known for. Um, but the weather there is 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 really unique. And and of course, every winemaker from any part of the world that you would talk to would say, "Oh, our weather is very unique," and it and that's what kind of makes the world go round and wine that, 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 that weather that, that is unique to the terroir of that spot. But, uh, we're, we're the only place on the coast of California. In fact, I've been told the only place on the West coast of the U S where the mountains and valleys run East, West instead of North South. So they're like these open channels to the Pacific ocean. And there's also a real important weather point, um, called point conception. Uh, point conception is about a half an hour North of Santa Barbara, and everything below point conception is influenced by southerly uh, currents and winds that come up from the south from Mexico, and they're they're warmer. Everything above point conception is influenced by currents and and winds that come down from the north, from Alaska, basically, and they're they're cooler. And uh, it's, it's what cools down the the wine growing areas in uh, in on the central coast. and And so we have this long, cool growing season uh very cool summers and which is ideal for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and other early ripening varieties. And then we have some of our best weather in September and October. And that's and so we can let later ripening varieties like Grenache and Syrah and Roussan hang out there and ripen and they they get there. So very, very unique growing area. But I mean when you started how many people in that area were working with how many people in California were working with Syrah? I was the fourth commercial producer of Syrah in california yeah. and uh and um, so that and that was 1982 so not really not that long ago when you think about it what uh, led you to make that decision i mean jim was a big burgundy guy He'd he's a burgundy. burgundy he's a burgundy guy yeah yeah that's his that's his and, and it still is his his passion you know chardonnay and pinot noir are what he uh is most passionate about but jim jim never met a grape he didn't like he he, he makes all kinds of weird stuff as well but uh but my, my passion uh, became the Rhone varietals, and I, I uh, always credit uh, Kermit Lynch. Uh, Kermit was uh, bringing in, he's, a, he's an importer. You, you, you obviously know him, but, but for your listeners, uh, Kermit is a really well-known importer. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, he was bringing in some of the greatest kind of unknown Rhone producers and selling their wines in, in mostly in California, but eventually throughout the US. And, uh, I, I visited his store actually while I was working for Zaca and, uh, and he kind of got on his soapbox about, uh, California wines and said, you know, you shouldn't be planting Chardonnay. You shouldn't be planting Cabernet. What you should be planting is Syrah and Grenache and Morved and Marsan and Roussan and Viognier. And he kind of, he said, these Rhone varieties would do amazing here. And, uh, and he wasn't wrong about that. They, they do amazing What he was wrong about is that we, we also do amazing Chardonnay and Cabernet and Pinot Noir. So, um, it's, it's amazing, you know, and the California wine industry, as it's kind of dialed itself in over the last 30, 40 years, uh, has figured out where to grow these grapes. You know, there are some places that maybe Pinot Noir shouldn't be planted, or there's some places where maybe Cabernet shouldn't be planted, but there are places in California that can accommodate on a high quality level, all the significant varieties. And one place that really kind of stood out for you in the course of, of Coupé is the Bien Nacido Vineyard. Yeah, very much so. The, um, when I started Coupé in 1982, the only Syrah available to me to, to buy the grapes was from this little vineyard, well, not, not little, but a pretty good-sized vineyard up in Paso Robles. But he had a little block. He had 10 acres of Syrah, a vineyard called Estrella River. Uh, A guy named Gary Eberly was the, the winemaker founder of Estrella river. And I asked him if he'd sell me some grapes and he said, yeah, I'd love to. So that's how I started coupé was with that. I also made Chardonnay and I also made uh, a dry rosé in the beginning. Um, a few years after I started coupé, I was approached by, um, this guy named Bob Miller, who was one of the owners, founders of Bien Nacido Vineyard. And he said, "I, I love your Syrah. I think, uh, that we could really grow some interesting Syrah be in the Cito vineyard. Would you be interested in talking to us about that? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, that, that'd be great. So I went out, took a tour of the vineyard. We figured out where some Syrah should be planted. And what they actually did was they grafted over some, uh, Riesling. Uh, they had planted Riesling, which was great, but they couldn't sell it. So they, they, we, we, kind of focused on this one block um, that still exists today, and I still get the grapes from it today, called X-Block. And uh, we grafted it over in 1986 uh, to Syrah, got the first crop in 1987, and I've been making Syrah from Bienacito ever since. And what's that
0: journey been like? I mean, it seemed like there weren't a lot of people making Syrah in California. Then it seemed like there were a lot of people making Syrah in California. And then it seemed like... uh all of a sudden, Australia was a big thing on the market. <laughs> so, I mean, in the driver's seat, just trying to sell that wine—how
1: was that? It, it, well, in the in the beginning, it was challenging because not too many people knew what it was. Um, and when you think about the the northern Rhônes that are made from Syrah, there isn't a lot of them made. Uh, they're they're very kind of small production wines. So the the consumer reach with Pure Syrah type wines was not that broad, uh, and around that same time, um, Australia uh, and Australian wines started to become more popular in the U.S. and and they obviously they make Syrah, usually calling it Shiraz, uh, same grape. Um, and and uh, Robert Parker, the the influential wine critic, you know, helped kind of put a lot of uh, those Australian wineries on the map. And he also, at the same time, put a lot of the small northern Rhone producers who are making Syrah, whether it be in Cornas or Hermitage or Cote Roti or Saint-Joseph, Crow's Hermitage, he helped put a lot of them on the map. And so all of a sudden their wines were getting more attention. Uh, they were able to raise their prices to where I think they, they needed to, to be. The, uh, when you look at those vineyards and you see what the prices were for those wines, before they became popular and before they became known, uh, it was, it was pretty astounding. Um, and all of that at the same time helped percolate the, uh, the interest in Syrah in California to the point where too many people planted Syrah too quickly before there was really a market for it. And how did that affect you? I mean, you've been a steady player all these years. Well, Well, it, it affected us in the sense that we had a lot of, uh, competitors, um, who kind of jumped on the bandwagon and uh but we b- b- because we've been doing it so long and we we kind of have a following we it didn't affect us negatively too much but but there there were some you know we had some issues there were you know some producers who had no business making syrah who were making syrah there were some growers who had no business growing syrah who were growing syrah and uh over the last 10 or so years that's kind of sorted itself out and uh you know kind of left the pretenders behind and uh just the 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 real players have have stayed in the game and and uh and now sirrah's kind of back on the uh the uptick in 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 california what's raw like to grow it's very easy to grow actually it's 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 known for being um you know very very uh it's vigorous it grows well in a lot of different climates, so you can grow it in cool climate, you can grow it in warm climate, and you can grow it everywhere in between. Uh, I think it makes the best wines in cool climate, which, um, if you that that's borne out by the Rhone Valley, uh, the 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 cooler northern sites in the Rhone Valley are really what where Syrah excels, and uh, it's just it's just a, a great grape. And in the cool climate in California, where we grow Syrah. You know, I think the wines are, are much more expressive, uh, much spicier. They hold their acidity better. Uh, they're longer-lived wines. They, they have better balance. So that's that's kind of what we, we lean towards is that cool climate character and cool climate vineyards. Did you find that in terms of serving them that
0: they required a little bit of a different approach than maybe Cabernet or Merlot?
1: Yeah, they're, I think they're actually a little bit more approachable. Um, you know, Cabernet and Merlot can be, but traditionally – Cabernet and Merlot need uh, some some time in bottle uh, to kind of soften and round out and complex, where Syrah is a little bit more kind of up front. It, it, it wears its character on its sleeve, if you will, if that makes sense. And it's, uh, it's, it's also a very, uh, uh, a little bit more fruit-driven wine than, uh, especially growing in California, a little more fruit-driven than Cabernet and Merlot are. So it it really... It really delivers. It's a a great grape variety. And it's a little bit like Pinot Noir in the sense that it has soft tannins and it's approachable as a young wine. But it has darker color, a little more body, a little more spicy character than Pinot does. So it kind of, I think, holds up with uh, a little bit heavier foods. Foods that you would traditionally serve something like Cabernet or Merlot with.
0: And I guess we should say at Coupe, you also make uh, some white.
1: Yeah, yeah, quite a bit actually. Yeah, the, yeah. The yeah, and, and I make Chardonnay, which which uh kind of flies under the radar a little bit, but um the Chardonnay is my second most um produced wine, uh at, right after our, our, our Syrah. Uh, but I also make uh three different white Rhone varieties, Roussan, Marsan, and Viognier. And I make a couple different now, a couple different Viogniers, a few different Marsans. Only one Roussan, but, uh, uh that, yeah, they're, they're, they're great grapes too. Really interesting wines. And tell me a little bit about them. I mean, uh, we don't often see a lot of varietal
0: Marsan, so what's it like and how did you end up planting it just out of the, the like that you have for Northern Rune wines or?
1: What? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, I credit Kermit. Uh, Kermit Lynch in- introduced me to Marsan as a varietal, uh, by selling me some bottles of, uh. Gripa San Joseph, yeah, it's Blanc. A good wine, yeah, great wine, and uh, and and cheap. You know, back in the the late seventies, early eighties, it was like you know seven dollars and fifty cents a bottle, and just really delivered a, a great uh, experience. And and Kermit also um, told me about how well these wines age. He didn't have any older ones to sell, but uh, I started putting putting them in the cellar. And uh, and they do. They age remarkably well. Because you know we've had white chauve together,
0: and that yeah, that's got some marsan on it. Yeah, it's, it's mostly marsan. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's a great wine.
1: For some one, age, one, yeah. one of the great white wines of the world. Twenty thirty years. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: What's what's marsan like to handle? And, uh, it
1: actually it's a, it's a fairly easy grape to grow. It's it's it, it's also quite vigorous. Um, it uh, it tends to um throw a bigger crop than you want to have, which is kind of a good problem to have because you can go in and, and thin. So what, it, we almost always do that with Marsan. We, we wait until uh, right around verasion time when the grapes are starting to change color, when they're starting to soften, and we go through and we trim off all the green clusters and just leave the, the better clusters behind. And what we get is uh, really good stuff. Uh, Marsan tends to, um, it doesn't have a lot of acid Uh, We're growing it in a cool climate, so in a cool climate, it has a little bit more acidity than it would otherwise. But I like to pick Marsan when it just starts to get ripe. Uh, I find that it has, at at, at a little bit lower sugar, it it has better acidity, better balance, better structure. And so that's kind of the style of Marsan that I like to make. Real crisp, fresh, um, relatively low in alcohol, somewhere between 12 and 13% alcohol. And it's a wine that... uh, we we bottle young we bottle it after about 5 or 6 months um and we sell it young but it ages beautifully it ages for 20 years you know it's amazing stuff and how
0: many different bottlings from marsan do you
1: make now i make 3 um i make one that we just call label simply as santa barbara which comes primarily from this vineyard called the abari young vineyard which is where i've been growing marsan since 1986 um, but now we have a little bit of Marsan at our, our own vineyard in the Edna Valley called the Sawyer Linquist Vineyard, and we just released from the 2012 vintage our first bottling of Sawyer Lindquist Vineyard Marsan. And then also in 2012, we got the first crop of Marsan from the Bienacito Vineyard, which I did a separate bottling of. Um, unfortunately, that's probably a one-off. Uh, Bienacito planted a little over an acre of Marsan ostensibly for us to to purchase the grapes from but we could not agree on a on a price um he wanted to pay him too much money and he, he was <laughs> like no way man i'm not taking yeah, all this dough yeah. well they what i mean basically and, and and i can't blame them but they they wanted they wanted to get kind of Roussan prices for marsan and Roussan is twice as expensive to grow and and sets half the crop that marsan does so it just didn't make sense to, to price Marsan the same as Roussan. So we weren't able to come to an agreement on, on price. So the, the one Marsan that I made from Bien nacido is probably the only one that I'm going to make from there. So Roussan is more difficult to grow then? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's twice as difficult to grow and it sets half the crop. So you can kind of do the math and then, and figure out how much more, how much costlier Roussan is to grow than Marsan is. But, uh and and it's a, it's a better grape frankly uh, i i love marsan makes great wine but roussan makes greater wine and it's just a lot more rare and special and difficult i
0: tend to find your marsans to have a lot of kind of orange blossom some and uh yeah. a orange zesty and then the the roussans to be more kind of white floral is that kind yeah. of dive in with your experience or? yeah
1: yeah they both have a nice kind of minerality to them but the roussan tends to be uh it's a richer wine, uh, higher acidity, and it tends to have more complexity um, as a, even as a young wine than, than Marsan does. And it ages kind of similarly to, to what Marsan does. And as, as these wines age, they get this real kind of honey nut character that's uh, real attractive. Great stuff. Because sometimes it seems like uh, that
0: Honey Nut character in Arone kind of throws people off, kind of middle age, where they're like, oh, this is oxidized. Right. But then it, it, it comes back know, from that. It comes back, back yeah. like years later, yeah. like if
1: you follow the same vintage. That's right. Well, I, we saw that when we did the, the, the Chau Blanc vertical, I think. The the wines that were middle age, so the wines that were between, say, three or four years old and about 10 years old, were a little dumb. They, did, they didn't show as much interest, I thought as the as the older wines
0: yeah i mean i asked them some pretty complex questions you know some carl sagan stuff a little bit of stuff about the history of the world and they didn't get any of them right so (laughs) i was like well i think you guys are pretty oh you met the other kind of dumb yeah 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 sorry no but i i agreed and i but i thought the the hard part to know is like oh okay are they did that period did they just make worse wine and this other period before that was it better but then i've actually followed some of those vintages that had previously been dumb, like the '94 for me, right. I'd had years previous, and at that time it had been kind of dumb. And on that night,
1: it was great, it was glorious. Yeah. So, that's yeah. you
0: know, that's you know, it almost takes like more than one sighting, yeah, to to know that it if you have faith in this thing, it'll come back. Do you find the, the similar aging curves in, in with the California versions? I do, and, and so
1: how do you deal with that? Well, I, I we sell it young, yeah, and I tell people to either drink it young, which most people do. Or if you're a patient and have a, a wine cellar, you know, put some away. And in fact, I, what I tell people with Marsan, because it's relatively inexpensive, we sell it for $20 a bottle retail, is they say, you know, buy two cases, drink one case over the next year, and the other case, just put it in the cellar and forget about it until it's about 10 years old and then start drinking it. So do you have any theories as to why that butterfly
0: kind of chrysalis thing happens with these grape varieties where it doesn't seem to happen so often with others?
1: I, I, I don't. It's just one of those kind of cool mysteries that uh, that comes with, with uh with aging wine. Do you
0: ever have people show up with a bottle and be like, This is oxidized? And you're like, Well, if you I, just I, it. I, I have had that
1: happen. Yeah, yeah. And I you know, the customer's always right, so if they're if they're returning it, but you know, also if you've if you've bought a bottle of wine and kept it for five years and you're not happy with the way it shows you know, that's kind of, you, you bought it, it's kind of your risk. But uh, at the same time, we always want customers to be happy. So if if they're not happy with it, we'll replace it with a younger wine. And they're usually happy if they, once they get the younger wine that's not showing that oxidation. Sometimes I found throwing a, a kind of what seems like a little bit of a, a nutty,
0: wine and like in terms of oxidized nutty into a decanter sometimes freshens
1: it up it does yeah, yeah all, right. it almost ages in reverse it, it gets lighter it gets lighter in color and, and you'll see that a lot with uh, northern Rhone white wines too where you you first pour a little bit in a glass and it's a little bit brownish and kind of dumb and, and not really showing well and and then you introduce a little more air into it like putting it into a decanter and it starts to get a little bit lighter in color and, and I've had this happen to me time and time again where you start to you go, oh, this is showing better. So you start to drink it. And by the time you get to the bottom of the bottle, it's it's actually younger, fresher than it was at the top of the bottle. And it's like, dang, you know, I wish, I, wish I'd wish i let it sit for a while before we started drinking it. But, uh, yeah, that happens often with, with Marsan and Roussan. Does it seem to cut across multiple producers? In other words, is it more than just winemaking? Is it the grapes?
0: Or is it the place? or I mean, what is it?
1: It, it it it's it's the grapes and the place, it, it, those, those two factors. Um, you know, cer- certainly winemaking comes into play because if you if you make Marsan in a a riper style, like some of the Marsans that that are made in in like Australia, for instance, uh, it makes a re- very different kind of wine. And and I'm told that a lot of those age well, but they they start off in from a different place. They're they're a lot more they're a lot darker in color as young wines are a lot more almost kind of, uh, oily and cloying as young wines because it doesn't have a lot of acidity. Um, not my style. I, 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 appreciate them, but I, I prefer the lighter kind of fresher
0: style. And have you gone to the Rhone and visited people and taken things away
1: from those visits? Like, Oh, I'm maybe going to do it this way or I'm not going to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I learned early on was to be patient with Marsan and Roussan. And and actually, one of the one of the things I learned, which was very kind of just one of those little practical things, was the second, the, the first year I made Marsan was 87. The second year was 88. And right after the 88 harvest, uh, I visited the seller of Shav. We talked about Shav before, visited their seller for the first time. And jean louiss father, Gerard, was in charge of the cellar, in charge of the winemaking at that time. And we were visiting with him and I was talking about Marsan. And I said, you know, I just made my 88 Marsan and uh, it smells like canned corn. And uh, Jim Clendenna was with me and speaks French. So he kind of translated, Gerard speaks a little bit of English, but and he kind of looks at me puzzled, canned corn. He <laughs> was like, the French don't, don't have canned corn. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah Right, right, right. <laughs> so but 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 he knew what I was talking about. And and he what he was describing at is kind of like wheat or grass or, you know, kind of a an earthy, grassy smell that, that uh that I was describing as canned corn. And he goes, Oh, you, you must separate it from the lees uh, before fermentation. And I said, Oh I must <laughs> It's <laughs> kind of a wine joke there. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, must with the must. Yeah. Da, da, yeah. Da. And I and it wasn't I, I didn't think about that. I, I, it hadn't occurred to me because I I was a Chardonnay maker prior to being a Marsan maker and the lees are your friend when you're making Chardonnay. You know, you want the lees. They have flavor, they have character. They they're, you know, uh, an important component. And with Marsan, I was kind of making it the same way thinking that the lees were important to to the quality of the wine. And it turns out that the lees is where that kind of off aroma and character uh, lie. And so Shav and now Bob, <laughs> se- I separate the, uh, the juice from the lees prior to fermentation. One of the routes that uh,
0: you may have done at times, but I'm, I, don't, I don't think I've encountered it, is to blend the Marsan with the Roussan into a single bottling. Is that mm-hmm. something you've experimented with, or have you always said, you know what, we're going to split the Marsan and the Roussan?
1: Well, in the beginning, I just made Marsan. So it was pure Marsan. Um, I didn't have any Roussan to, to use. In the, and so that was back in the late 80s when I started making Marsan. In the kind of mid to late 90s, I started making Roussan. And uh, I recognized how Roussan could kind of bring some body and complexity to Marsan, where not really the other way around. Uh, Marsan doesn't really add much. If you have great Roussan, Marsan really doesn't add that much to it. But if you have Marsan and you have some interesting Roussan that you can blend into it, it definitely uh, you know kind of gives it a, a there's a synergy. Uh, you know, a one plus one equals three uh kind of synergy with those two varieties but you didn't go that route or did you experiment now yeah yeah start so starting in the late 90s i started blending a little bit of Roussan in in with the marsan oh you do but you label it marsan i label it marsan oh okay because we well because we (laughs) tricky bob yeah well well, the the laws are that if it's at least 75 percent marsan you can call it marsan and since we had already you know built a little bit of a following for varietally labeled marsan I wanted to keep that continuity. So what I do is I label it Marsan, and then in smaller print underneath that, I list what the percentage of Marsan and the percentage of russon is. And what have you found has worked for you over the years? It, it, usually somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five percent Rousan. So a pretty healthy dose of Rousan, and you know that 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 seems to be the the best. The the, the current vintage, the twelve, is. Uh, 75% Marsan, 25% Roussan. And what's it like to sell these wines?
0: I mean, I can oh, o- fun. only yeah. think
1: of w- one other. I'm sure there's more, but, wow,
0: well, there's a couple. But, you know, Beckman makes... Uh, makes Marsan. yeah. But in terms of California, you know, you think of some... some uh, Maybe San makes made some Marsan, but there's yeah. not so many. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, uh, did you have to really kind of break the ground for people and introduce them? To it, I, I,
1: I did, I, and, and in fact, I kind of joke a little bit that you know I've been making Marsan now for 25 years, and it's finally caught on. <laughs> it, it, it you know, we, we, we gain Marsan and Rusan customers one at a time. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about educating them. It's about them, you know, customers tasting it and having an open mind. It's about. Uh, restaurants that have a sommelier who believes in the varieties who can go to the table and say you know instead of that chardonnay or instead of that sauvignon blanc try this instead i think you'll like it and almost always uh people do what w- would you say i mean why would
0: somebody have that instead of a chardonnay you make chardonnay too mm. i mean in what situation should someone reach for your chardonnay on the shelf or or your Roussan on the shelf what does it bring to the dining experience like in terms of they, the they're
1: they're they're interchangeable uh Chardonnay and Roussan, I think are interchangeable. Marsan is a, excuse me, a a little bit lighter bodied wine than Roussan is. Um, So I, I, I find that it uh, would be a a great substitute for something like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Gris or, you know, an Albarino, something kind of in that weight of, of white wine. Um, Not quite as much acidity as most of those varieties, uh, but it, it still can have good acidity and good balance. Where with Roussan, it's a bigger, richer—at least, especially the style that I make. Um, I also put it in in uh, French oak barrels. I, I put it all in one-year-old French oak barrels, so it gets a little bit of oak as well. Um, and it's it's completely inter- interchangeable with Chardonnay in terms of what you would serve it with, or you know, the the kind of enjoyment factor that you would get out of the out of the wine. And what about Viognier? I make Viognier also. And uh, to me, Viognier is is very different. Marsan and Roussan have a lot more similarities to each other, where Viognier is a much more kind of aromatic. It's a much more floral variety. And to me, it's a variety that's really uh, better when it's young. It can age. I've had older uh, Viogniers that have been really interesting. But what it loses as it ages is that kind of really pretty floral and lychee nut, uh, aromatic, you know, jasmine. I mean, it's a really cool grape variety aromatically when it's, when it's young. It loses that as it ages. And to me, that's part of the inherent charm of Viognier. So I, I prefer to, to drink Viognier young. And I, I tell my customers that buy our Viognier, drink it young. Drink it before the next vintage comes out. And what's it like to grow the Viognier? It's actually pretty easy. It has a reputation in France as being difficult to grow, but the most famous areas for growing Viognier in France, well, the most famous is Condrieu and and Chateaugriere. They're, they're steep hillsides that are, that are tough, tough places to grow anything. And, uh, so I think that's half the battle right there. They're, they're growing it in these really challenging conditions and making great wine from it because it is challenging. But if you grow it on gently rolling hillsides in you know, perfect California weather, uh, Viognier is very consistent and, and uh, relatively easy to grow. You have seen the industry change a little bit in California.
0: What stood out for you as kind of major signpost changes throughout the years since the late 70s in the development of, of California, both in the winemaking and in the, the sales?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely become an established region. You know, it's, it's, it's now widely respected internationally as a, a great wine growing region and, you know, and really Napa Valley kind of leads the way. Um, it, you know, that's the first area that kind of became famous internationally and it's still the most famous, uh, California wine growing area. But, uh, you know, other areas have come into their own, like Sonoma and Monterey County, and certainly Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties, where we are. And uh, so that so that's been a big change. It has just been the international acceptance of California wines. People talk of it in the same kind of terms, in terms of quality, as as, as some of the great uh, wines from other regions, like 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 France and Italy and Germany and so forth. Um, what's also been a little bit interesting uh, has been how how a lot of the the kind of wine geeks um have gone back to they they've kind of dismissed a lot of california wines and gone back to maybe more obscure uh european wines as as a as a preferred wine but but i but i find that that there are and and i understand that too because a lot of what's happened in california has been big commercial wineries and big commercial wineries make big commercial wines. And, uh, they're not the kind of wines that I drink. Um, I understand them. I appreciate them. It's not that they're bad wines. They're just not, they don't have as much, uh, interest or sense of place as some of the smaller produced wines. Some of the, so, so there are, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are wine geek wines made in California too. It's just that, uh, they're, they're maybe not, not as appreciated as, uh, as some of our European counterparts. Did that change surprise you? I mean, say in, in the nineties
0: when California cab and Chardonnay seemed to be king and queen, were were you thinking, you know, I I bet one day these guys are, these sommeliers are going to switch back and start doing more
1: European stuff. That's going to be the trend. (laughs) It did surprise me a little bit actually, but, uh, but at the same time i i'm i'm a i'm a francophile I, I i i cut my teeth on european wines that's really where i learned uh about quality wine and i i still love them and appreciate them and and uh i i like i like the balance in them and i also appreciate california wines that are made balanced and structured and acidity is a real important factor for me I i i, I don't like wines that are too sweet or too heavy or don't have the acidity to give it the freshness that, that, uh, I think wine needs to have to go well with food. So in a way, have you benefited from that kind of desire
0: or search for something different when you're selling Marsan and, and, you know, it's a hand sell and someone's yeah. looking for something different from California. Do they call you up and say, Hey, I heard you're doing something a little different. I mean, is
1: that. We, we do. Yeah. 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 In fact, it's, it's, it's been a nice little edge, you know, to, to have some things that are a little bit different and, and, uh, a little bit not so you know not not the trendy varieties, but uh, uh, varieties that 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 are are maybe interesting to to more of the wine geeks,
0: because it seems like you've uh, pursued those in your other project uh, that your wife heads up as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is Verdad. Uh, yeah. are you are working with some more Spanish uh, grape varieties. How did that come about, and what was the the genesis there?
1: Yeah, my wife Louisa is a winemaker as well, and she uh, when we started dating, she loves. Uh, Spanish Albarino and uh, I really didn't know much about Spanish Albarino and so she kind of turned me on to it and it's like, wow, yeah, this is really cool. This is good stuff. And uh, at the same time, uh, a friend of mine, um, Brian Babcock, had just recently gone to Spain and visited a winery there where he was able to secure some uh, budwood uh, of great Albarino vines brought it back to his place in in Santa Barbara County and planted I don't know, half a dozen, 10 Albarino vines or something like that. So at the same time that Louisa was turning me on to Albarino, Brian Babcock was planting Albarino at his vineyard. And so I uh, asked Brian if he'd be willing to part with some cuttings and, and uh, so I could grow some plants myself and and he did. And we planted a little bit of Albarino back in, um, what was that, 1996. Uh, got our first crop in '99. Got our first commercial crop in 2000, and uh, have been making Albarino ever since. Because it seems like uh, you know, Rhone wines have kind of
0: ascended into the hierarchy of great wines in the American consciousness, at least amongst the the wine
1: set. But that uh, great varieties like Albarino are still a little bit,
0: you know, emerging.
1: To, yeah, to put yeah, yeah, a little bit under the radar still, probably, but. Uh, you know, if you go to uh, the northwest corner of Spain, uh, the area known as Galicia, uh, that's what you drink. You know, it's, it's an area that's famous for seafood and uh, Albariño grows well there. and It makes, maybe great wine is not the right adjective for Albariño. I, I don't think it achieves the same kind of greatness that you can achieve with Chardonnay or Riesling, but but it, it makes you know, really, really good wine. And, uh, and it makes great wine to have with the food that comes from that region. And so that's really what it's kind of, for me, that's kind of what it's all about. In a way, you've been involved with a couple projects that were a little
0: bit ahead of the game in terms of introducing an, the American public to great varieties that weren't so common watching that market build. Um, when you look at younger people, who seem to be doing a lot of that today, looking for different grape varieties, do you see a same sensibility in those younger winemakers that are, say, a generation or two younger than you? Or do you see a, a different mindset? Or what's the same and what's different than 79 and, and Bob and Jim?
1: <laughs> what's funny is is it, you hear about pendulum swinging back and forth. The, 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 the pendulum going towards balanced wines, wines with structure, wines with acidity, it's 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 now swinging back that way and what i what we're finding what jim and i are finding are young winemakers who are making wines that that are are, are like that that you know, wines that I, that I like to say wines that i can drink <laughs> and and that's being done in california you know guys like arno roberts and raj parr and tyler uh justin willett uh some of those those wines you know really good stuff gavin channon one of our proteges he used to be our assistant winemakers making some really great uh chardonnay and pinot noir that are you know balanced structured wines 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 like we make wines like we like to drink
0: you see them as younger versions of yourself and with the same ideas and energy
1: or are they different somehow in, in this well, I generation think, i think it's 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 just it's just wine you know there, there are classic styles of wine that don't go out of favor and uh, you know balanced structured wines you know have 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 had a place at the table for centuries in Europe and uh you know those kind of things just never never go out of favor they might they might not be as popular for a little while you know like like if you look back at the 90s and even back in this past decade you know the the kind of bigger heavier higher alcohol wines became more favored and i think that was really due more to more because of the press i think the press rewarded those big wines, because they stood out more. They kind of, they hit you over the head and said, give me a higher score, you know, and, and, uh, but when it came right down to it, when you go to drink those wines, they don't deliver as much pleasure. Uh, they don't go as well with food. They, if they're higher in alcohol, they, they give you a headache, <laughs> you know? they, the, the French figured it out a long time ago, what size the bottle should be for a bottle of wine. They figured out that three-fourths of a liter, not a half a liter, not a liter, but three-fourths of a liter was the right amount for two people to pull the cork, drink with their meal, finish the bottle, and not be overserved. You know, they had just the right amount of wine. Maybe if it's a Friday night or a Saturday night, you might want to open a second bottle. But usually on most nights, that one bottle was just the perfect amount. Do you think that that started to not be the case with some of the higher octane wines? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean you've had some of those wines. They're interesting, they're intriguing, they're hedonistic, but uh after you have like a glass or or maybe two, you're they're 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 tiring. Yeah, you know, they they don't they don't have the freshness. They don't they don't make you want more. They 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 have already delivered what they're going to deliver to your palate and and uh, you're you're ready to move on to something else. Speaking of something else, I mean, one thing I noticed that happens
0: under the Verdad label that I haven't noticed happening under Coupe, although maybe I I missed it now or at a previous time, is a rosé. I've mm-hmm. seen I've seen a Verdad rosé. I haven't seen a Coupe uh, rosé. What's it like to make rosé, and why haven't you chosen to make rosé? Is it a factor of grape varieties? Is it a factor of grapes and access, or is it just personal style? Or what's the difference?
1: Well, actually, when I started Coupe, I made Syrah, Chardonnay, and I made a dry barrel-fermented pink wine that we called Van it was Kind of like a rosé, but we called it Van Grie. And it didn't sell. Um, we, we sold the Chardonnay well, we sold the Syrah well, but the Van Grie didn't sell well. And the Van Grie was supposed to be more like a cash flow wine that we released earlier and sold quicker. And, and it just it didn't pan out. So I stopped making it after about three or four years. And just didn't go back to it. But I always, and I love rosé. and enjoy rosé. Just I, I, I went into a different direction. And then in the in the late '90s, I was hired to uh, be a consulting winemaker for a winery in Provence, the home of you know some of the most you know, interesting rosé in the world. And uh, and the and this winery called Chateau Rutas uh, made quite a bit of rosé. So I got my my, my rosé fix again, making this Provencal rosé and I loved it. And Louisa, my wife loved it as well. And so when she started Verdad, she said, you know, I'm going to make rosé also. So she did. Uh, she started making rosé when she started making Albariño uh, at first from Tempranillo grapes, but Tempranillo is not a rosé grape. There's no tradition in Spain really for Tempranillo as a rosé grape and, and it, it didn't work out so well. So she switched to Grenache, and Grenache, of course, is one of the great rosé grapes. Great red grape, too. So that's been her focus ever since, Uh, Grenache Rosé. We grow Grenache at our Sawyer Lindquist Vineyard, and um, we have one section that we keep separate for rosé. And uh, so now I get my fix through her (laughs) um, making
0: uh, rosé. You know, California climate, people talk about Mediterranean Provence what might you like to drink there crisp rosé right and then what might be somewhat easy to grow there well maybe rosé right 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 has the press kind of by not rewarding the the rosé makers in the way that you talked about how they rewarded the opposite of that how they rewarded high octane reds yeah have have we missed out an opportunity to just have a more enjoyable life because we haven't noticed what's there and possible
1: for us to have in that climate yeah i think that's true to a to a certain extent you know there hasn't been a lot of uh press or praise for for rosé but uh what i find also with with, with that is is again i I keep using the term wine geek but people who really know wine and like wine really appreciate rosé as a and, and usually in the style that that we like to make, which again is the the kind of crisp, light, fresh, drink me now uh, type of rosé that uh, it's just it's thirst quenching. It's it's you you drink it in the summertime. You can drink it all year round, but the, the the perfect time to drink it is when the weather's warm and you're you know you're you're starting up the barbecue. You know we will we'll finish off a bottle of rosé while the while the while the grill's warming up. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's it, we we drink a lot of rosé, especially in the summertime, and even in this this time of year, it's still nice and warm and and uh, perfect rosé weather. We talked a little bit about before about
0: the you know some of the difficulty in sourcing grapes and and agreeing with growers about price. Has that become exacerbated, or is it easier as uh, there are more growers, but also more competition for the grapes on the scene?
1: That that that, that uh, grapes are are kind of like a commodity. They 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 go up and down with the market. And, and with availability and um, in, the, in the 30 plus years now that I've been making wine, I've seen, you know, numerous up and down cycles. And uh, for recently, it was kind of down. And I think that had a lot to do with the economy. And, uh, but now that things are kind of on the uptick again, grape prices are, are on the upswing again. And then we also had a, a short crop in 2010 and 2011. And so there was a shortage and so whenever there's a shortage, there's a higher demand. So that will affect prices and prices start going back up. And then in 2012, and it looks like again this year in 13, we're going to have a, a larger than normal crop. Uh, but we're also on an upswing. So right now it's a, it's a good time to be a, a grape grower, I think, because there's high quality and good quantity and good prices but there's
0: probably not so much acreage of certain grape varieties that you handle like i can't imagine there's that
1: much marsan or Vignette. no but we but we have our own sources you know so that's we we're, we're 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 pretty well covered that way we have you know vineyards that we own vineyards that we lease vineyards that we have had long term relationships with that we get grapes from so we we have our sources dialed in but you're right there are things like marsan there isn't that much of it around so if uh, more
0: people are looking for it to try to distinguish themselves. Right. If you didn't have the long-term contracts in place, I wonder if it might be more difficult to source the grapes. It, it,
1: it definitely is.
0: Yeah. So what's next for Bob Lindquist? I mean, one of the things that uh, kind of strikes me about you is you're you're a guy who kind of sticks to what he believes, whether it's fashionable or not, and you kind of build a market, as you referred earlier to, by kind of customer by customer, bottle by bottle. Yeah. You know, kind of the old-fashioned model of... You know, personal relation, meeting people, introducing kind of the soft sell in a lot of ways, whereas, you know, during the go-go 90s, I thought there was a lot of hard sell from some more prestigious regions of California. You know, Bob was always a chill guy, you know, (laughs) kind of a laid back kind of California model, which, you know, there are plenty of people like that in California, but sometimes when things got really popular, you didn't always encounter them, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, what's the plan for you as things go forward? I mean, what, what are you
1: sticking to or what are you developing? Well, we 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 stick to our guns, you know. Which is, I mean, we we I I I I like to experiment, but I also um, I'm a businessman, you know. And, and wine, our you know wine for us also is a business. It's a it's a playground for artistic expression, but bottom line is we you know we have to make a profit. We have to sell the wine. So so I like to stick with what we do best and where we have really kind of improved ourselves is in the vineyard. We we, we we just try to keep making the vineyard better and better and better each year. And to that end, uh, the vineyard that, that Louisa and I own that we planted in uh, 2005 called the Sawyer Lindquist Vineyard, we farm biodynamically. And so that's kind of, for us, the newest, latest thing that we're dabbling with is is biodynamic farming, which is kind of this wacky method of, of uh, organic farming uh, to the nth degree uh, that's really cool. And, and we're, we're, now that we're, we've been doing it for a while, we're really seeing the results. We're seeing the results in the quality of the wine, in the health of the vines, in the health of the soil. And it's uh, it's really interesting to watch. So you decide you want to do biodynamic conversion in your vineyard. What's the first thing you do? I mean, how do Actually, you Actually, we didn't to- do conversion because it was a new vineyard. Uh, planted on ground that had never had any grapevines planted before so we weren't we weren't having to change it from traditional farming or i should say conventional farming to biodynamic farming we were able to do it right from the start which i think helped Um, but you know basically it's it's all about nurturing the soil nurturing the plants and uh, just creating a uh, you know an atmosphere and organism in the vineyard uh to to promote its its health and its well-being and it's in its balance in the universe i mean i imagine you have some
0: conventionally farmed parcels that you purchase grapes from what 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 for you is the difference when you taste the, uh, the difference
1: right right well of course if you want to do an empirical study you need to have a level playing field and for me, uh, I was able to watch a friend of mine, a guy named Steve Beckman, who has uh, the Parissima Mountain Vineyard in, in uh, the Santinez Valley. He had a, a great vineyard, Parissima Mountain, that he was farming conventionally. He got turned on to biodynamics and started farming one small parcel biodynamically amongst all of the parcels that he was still farming conventionally. And then he started farming one parcel organically so he was able to do this kind of side-by-side-by-side by side by side experiment, looking at the health of the vines, the quality of the fruit, and then ultimately the character of the wine. And and he noticed that the biodynamic section was healthier, the soil was better, the grapes were better, and if the grapes are better, the wine's going to be better. And so he eventually, after experimenting for three, four, five years, converted his whole vineyard over to uh, biodynamic farming.
0: You know, that that kind of bespeaks to friends in the area kind of talking to each other and sharing what their experience is. It always kind of struck me that uh, in the same way that you have a strong relationship with Jim, I mean, you guys have shared business interests, but you also have a strong like give and, give and take relationship over the years. Um you know, is that more of a Southern California thing? I mean, do we see the same level of sharing <laughs> uh, when you, when you hit into some of the more prestigious uh, areas a little bit further north in California? I mean, are there is there that same like he's in, tasting my cellar? He's telling me what his experience was, or is that something that's uh, more generational, or what?
1: I know? find, for the most part, uh, that wine growers and winemakers are are friendly people who enjoy what they do and don't mind sharing that information. There may be some things that you want to keep as proprietary and you don't want to share with some people, you know. But again, you get back to the fact that it is still a business. And in some of the more prestigious areas where there's higher dollars involved, uh, Napa Valley, for instance, Bordeaux, for instance, Burgundy, you know, they, 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 they may maybe in those areas, maybe aren't quite as uh, open with each other because there's a lot more dollars at stake and, and uh, a lot more competition at stake. And, uh, but where, where we are, we're in a new growing area. It's not new anymore, it's, but it's relatively new in the overall scheme of things. So we're kind of all, um, pioneers it you know, it, I guess is a good way to look at it in in a, in a new growing area and we're in it together. We, what, you know, what, what helps one guy succeed, helps another guy succeed, helps another person uh, succeed. And, uh, it's, it's been good. It's been good. Bob Lindquist, thank you very much for being here today. Hey, you're welcome, Levy. Thanks for your time. My, my pleasure.
0: All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose